Dudes of Kung Fu. Hey all, welcome to episode three of Dudes of Kung Fu. Oh man, I wish I could say it as cool as you, Alex. <laughs> I've had a lot of practice, so. You well, know. listen, you know, we're uh, it's it's only like I say one of the many things that I'm envious of Alex with and. You know, oh God. The way he says dudes of kung fu and his two percent body fat, I would say that kind of like. <laughs> I don't know about the two percent body fat bit, but I'm definitely working on it. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, hey. Um, so this is really cool. the feedback from the first few episodes. Now that we're kind of everywhere, we're on iTunes, we're on uh, the, with the Google Play, we're we're like everywhere now, and we even got uh, we even got a review on uh, iTunes now. Yeah, um, a gentleman named Sifu Du, that's how he has it spelled, Sifu D-O-O, uh-huh. um, he gave us five stars. Is he related to Scooby? Yeah, well, or maybe he's his cousin Scrappy, but uh, <laughs> but he's a Sifu, so that means he can beat me up, so I'm not going to... Uh, okay. uh, <laughs> so he gave us five stars, and um, we want to thank him. He said, great new podcast with JKD Roots. And his review said, I love these guys. They are a friendly, uh, informational approach to Kung Fu podcasts. I love that they have a JKD Wing Chun background and a great humor. And then he signed it the best way you could possibly sign a review in the world. He signed it, Iron Chic, baby. So, <laughs> which is just awesomeness. So, yeah, Sifu, dude, we want to thank you, guys. Thank you, bro. And we don't know who you are, but you rock. And, yeah, and um, we, we would also love to encourage more people to chime in. Our uh, podcast is brand new, so the more people go out there and review it and, and repost it and let other people know about it, uh, the uh, the quicker we can quit our normal jobs and do this for a living, right? Right. Well, listen, <laughs> I, that's that's the goal for everybody, right? I want to talk on the computer for a living. Um, <laughs> in fact, we want to um, just get, some, get this out of the way because we're excited about it. Uh, Seafood Do inspired us. If um, we're, we're looking at over the next month, we'll hopefully we can get some more reviews. And we're hoping if you go, if you like this podcast, if you can go to iTunes and give us a five star review, and just write anything, anything that you feel is true about the podcast. We're gonna after a month, we're gonna go through the reviews. Literally take every name, put it in a hat, pull it out, and whoever wins, we're gonna send a. Special JKD slash Wing Chun slash Dudes of Kung Fu prize or gift, and um, as a as a way of showing our appreciation for giving us an hour of your day of your time every week, we really appreciate it. And we're right. glad something you guys like are joining. A, something like a five by seven foot poster of both of our heads signed uh, by us <laughs> personally. <laughs> Something obnoxious that you can't actually put anywhere. <laughs> well, we have an awesome. Uh, we have an awesome list here of topics. Most of them I didn't even tell Alex about yet, and he has a list that he didn't tell me about. So we're going to have some fun here tonight. We have yeah, a pretty so packed t- show. It's so pretty typical, I guess. Yeah, right. We, yeah, I realize. See, see, Alex and I, we really just, we really don't like each other all that much. So we don't talk except for this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's going to be a little bit like Siskel and Ebert. Like a lot of people didn't know, like the two of them actually purportedly didn't get along that well. And uh, this is kind of funny, like you know, okay, it's so going to become one of those things, right? You got to, you got to. It's no, it's not by accident that he picked a skinny and fat guy. I'm just saying, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so what we did is uh, earlier last week I had um, asked for people to post questions on Facebook, on our Facebook page, which, by the way, is at facebook.com slash dudes of kung fu. 
Multitudes of Kung Fu. And also in the uh, Facebook group that I run, I run a Facebook group that has about 7,000 members. You can search it up. It says uh, Big JKD is the name of the Facebook group. B-I-G-J-K-D for you spelling impaired. And um, <laughs> and I, I, I post... I threw a post in there saying if you guys want us to cover any topics or have any questions, feel free to post them and Alex and I will try and get to them. And you guys did not disappoint. You came up with quite a few. And one of one of which we're actually going to tackle pretty much in depth tonight. We're going to devote, I'm going to say, 20 minutes of, at least of our, of our one-hour podcast to one topic. We... Um, we want to, you know, hit it pretty hard and, and, and look at it in a way that uh, most martial arts podcasts don't look at, uh, or I should say give away information. We want to actually do that. We want to, you know, make people come away from this saying, hey, you know what? They at least gave me something to think about. And um, so that, that question was uh, provided for us by, I'm gonna, I'm, I know his name, but I'm, I don't want to screw it up. I, you know, I'm, his name is Mark. And, um, but I'm going to, you know, I feel like an idiot here. I wrote it down, but I don't know where I wrote it down. But, um, I am going to, we're going to go, we're going to go into that and we're going to, you know, talk about the UFC tonight. We're going to talk about, uh, quite a few things and I'm hoping you guys will enjoy it. So what's going on with you, Alex? What's new in the world of, um, of Wing Chun? Uh, well, uh, the school's crazy busy as always. Uh, I have a big project I'm working on. Uh, which will probably send me off to Hong Kong in a few months, but uh, I'm not quite ready to disclose that yet. But as that project uh, uh, gets a little bit more finalized, we'll definitely have some big news to announce, uh, uh, have something really big uh, planning, like a really major, major project that I'm super excited about. Um, on top of that, just been, you know, as I always say, busier than a one-legged man in an ass-kicking contest. Uh, oh, that's cool. Te- that's cool. Teaching like an absolute maniac. Uh, the school is growing in leaps and bounds, and uh, um, we sold out of the first run of my book, uh, The Little Idea, and already have the uh, second run well on order. And and uh, that's crazy. It's going to be at Amazon, uh, Barnes and Nobles, uh, everything. Wing Chun is going to pick up a bunch of copies. So uh, finally, I'm like a legit author. I'm legit at something. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's awesome, dude. I, I, I can't wait to read the copy that I was promised a month ago. That's, um... <laughs> yes, clerical errors and, and, and whatnot. You, you have, by the way, you have a shout-out in the book. In the back, I have an acknowledgement section. Really? You a, yeah, you have a shout-out in my book. So, uh, Holy shit. Uh, you, you were definitely meant to get a copy. Uh, I, I, uh, you, you did clerical errors and whatnot. Uh, you yeah, know. Not, so I'm just, I'm just going to have fun with that until I can read it. <sighs> Um, so here, here's the first thing I wanted to talk about a little bit tonight. Um, it, there's, again, there's no correct answer to this. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about Chi Sao. And people refer to Chi Sao as, some people refer to it as sticking hands. Some people refer to it as sticky hands. Some people say, it doesn't matter, whatever comes out of my mouth is right anyway. <laughs> um, I know... For me, I'm going to screw up the quote, and I am going to apologize to begin with. My my sifu always quotes Moyat, and because he was he's a disciple of Moyat, and he says Moyat would say something to the effect of, um, I, 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 "I there are many English words I know, but this one I I happen to know. It's sticking, not sticky, and the reason I feel that that it's correct." 
sticking rosy sticky sticky hands or sticky arms tends to give a train of thought that your arms are quote unquote sticky that people are stuck to your arms and that's not the situation you want it's a sticking hand now people can argue all day what you're sticking to some people say you're sticking to your opponent's hands so you can be free i tend to think and teach that you're sticking to center and i at least that's the thought process that i try and have the guys that work with me keep in their head when they're when they're working sticking hands is stop thinking about trying to be stuck to the guy's hands that shouldn't be in part of the equation it's you're trying to stick to center if he moves adjust to center so that you're sticking to center so um what is what's your thoughts on that and do you or i, I just sprung this on alex he had no time to prepare for this no this is, i mean this is like what i do on a daily basis this kind of thing uh yeah, well, actually, that's a really good question. And, of course, when you discuss this with different factions of Wing Chun or whatever, everyone's going to have a slightly different answer. But, um, you know, the way I look at it, which is obviously highly influenced from, from my teachers, uh, there's a famous saying in, in Wing Chun. It's yao sao, qi sao, uh, which is if you have hands, stick to them. And the second half of that is mo sao man lo. Mo sao man lo means, and if there are no hands, you go forward, you ask the way. And that's a, for me, it's an important distinction because like to say that your hands are always sticky means that you're always trying to stick to the other person's hands, regardless of whether they're in your way or not. And that would be a mistake, right? Because we don't want to chase hands, right? So we have this kind of fine line we have to uh, cross in Wing Chun because we also have this very famous saying, means chase the body, don't chase the hands. Okay, so of course, it's always to what degree do you stick to the hands? To what degree do you just go forward and hit? Because you have, you have two pitfalls with either one. If you just stick to the hands, you have a tendency to kind of chase and kind of go. You can kind of go nowhere very fast, so to speak, right? Uh, constantly chasing and going where the arms are, and you're never hitting the guy. You're never going to knock him down because you're kind of too busy playing hands with the guy, right? right? On the other hand, if you only go forward and hit and you don't really stick, the guy could slip over your arms and punch you back too, and then it turns into rock'em sock'em robots, right? So we basically, in this very kind of yin-yang kind of way, have to find this balance between sticking to things that are in our way that would otherwise hit us, but at the same time not being so stuck to the arms that we lose the opportunity to go forward, to hit the center, to control our opponent. So that's why I like the saying, if, if there are hands, meaning if there are hands in your way to hitting, but if the hands are not in your way to hitting, you should just go forward and hit, right? Yeah, so, I love that. That's awesome. So this, that's kind of, uh, I guess, a simplified answer uh, as, as best as one can do on a podcast without physically showing how that's supposed to work, right? Right. And and that leads me to, uh, we'll chat a little bit, little bit of Chisau here. One of the things, I always borrow an expression from um, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, they, they talk about position before submission, Mm-hmm. And I think to me, how I do and teach Chisau is that applies perfectly. That it, instead of submission, hitting. I think too, too many guys get into Chisau and in their head, they won't be able to tag the other guy before the other guy tags them. Or they have some moronic idea. If they tag him three times and he only tagged me two times, I quote unquote won the drill. Right, which, exactly. is, which is the dumbest shit in the world. So what I try and emphasize with my guys 
is that if you can make sure that you always take proper position first before you worry about whether the hand should fly forward or not, that the proper position, the proper angle, have proper facing should be the should dictate whether you're doing well or not in Chisiao. Not if you're getting tagged or if you're tagging. You know, and I, 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 I use the word tagging, but we both know I mean hitting. So if sure. I was rolling Chisiao with someone of, you know, that I work with on a regular basis, I'm more concerned with it. Instead of me being concerned with hitting them or them even hitting me, I'm more concerned with seeing if I can get a better position. And what I call better position is getting them facing off my center. Well, while I'm facing their center. And that, to me, is position before submission when accepting chi sao. So it's, it's gaining the upper angle, getting the right position before the hand can fly forward. That if you can just sit there and just tag a guy, like, so what? You're not learning anything. You're winning the drill, and your ego got stroked, but who cares? It, it, but if, if we can sit there and make it frustrating for the guy, and even if it's like, so what, what I like to do is like, so say you're in, I'm going to screw up the way you say it, because Alice likes to make fun of the way I talk about Chinese. I don't he, make fun of the way you talk. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I make fun of the way I talk. So if, you're, if you do Chi Sao, as most people at least start off Chi Sao in Yiji Kim Young Ma, right? And if you could, what I like to do as to test myself, to work myself, there's nothing to do with, anything else other than how I work myself is I like to just take one of my feet, let's say my left foot, turn it to create this art angle for myself. So that when I turn, I turn my foot and slightly turn my hips and then come back to center. And I try and turn back to center as they're adjusting. And that, that little quasi drill within a drill has taught me so much about even what to do with my hands to help take center and, and, and help keep that little mantra of position before submission. If I, if I worry about just getting to center line, the, the, the strikes will come. The, the, the openings will be there. But if you can just hitting without having proper position, to me is like you use the term Rock'em Sock'em Robot, and that was perfect. It's, it's, it's nonsense. It's winning a drill. You beat up the heavy bag. Big freaking deal. Yeah, although I would actually consider that losing a drill because since people aren't actually learning anything from it, right. um, then actually the drill is not being won. I mean, I think you, you win when you actually learn something from it. And, and most people, especially in Chinese martial arts, but Wing Chun in particular, they're so passive aggressive because unlike kickboxers or boxers or whoever, you will just put on gloves and see what's what. It's like the chi sao thing gets to be the main way you can kind of show what you can do. So it becomes this super passive aggressive kind of very douchey way of practicing with somebody and fighting them, but kind of pretending you're not really fighting them, but kind of right. still getting in a cheap shop and kind of pretending it's normal, but it's kind of cool or whatever. And, and I really hate that. I really like chi sao, the, 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 the parameters of what it's actually supposed to be for. Uh, to be well understood by by both partners and then that to be carried out and we make a distinction between she's out technical training and um she's out sparring training and then just straight up sparring and straight up lotso. i mean these are all different types of modalities that are all meant to work different parts of the system the only thing that puts everything together is actual sparring actual fighting that's the summation of all of these things right right uh and you're totally right in your kind of uh um, Brazilian jiu-jitsu analogy of position before submission because so many times 
people are so uh, aggressive about going in that they're they, they walk into attack the guy, but they also walk into a punch themselves because they haven't set it up. They don't control the center. They don't control the person's hands. And as a result, it just becomes this like ridiculous clash. You know, I mean, like even even hardcore boxers would take only one or two punches before they would try to tie the other guy up. And sometimes Wing Chun guys lacking so many tools and lacking proper chi cell will just stand there and keep punching each other like a bunch of idiots and then talk about how intelligent Wing Chun is as a fighting style. <laughs> and, 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 you know, I look at that and I just I, I want to I want to run as fast as I can head first into a wall. If that's what people think Wing Chun is, because it's embarrassing as all sin. And that has nothing to do with what uh, I believe you teach or I teach or the better Wing Chun or Chi Kendo instructors out there. But it's unfortunately represented as such in, in lots of YouTube videos. And, and, and of course, what's now kind of worse than YouTube videos are the dudes posting videos on Facebook of themselves teaching Wing Chun where oh, what they're teaching is perhaps of somewhat dubious quality or understanding or whatever and that stuff gets pushed around and then oi yo 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 it's it's like i'm getting tired of having to defend a wing chun that is not the one i believe in you know it's like hey i don't know what those guys are doing that's not my thing i don't know how you feel about that well facebook and facebook videos and youtube are probably the best and yet at the same exact time the worst thing to ever happened to wing chun they um any idiot can post videos and 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 call themselves an instructor and uh in fact it brings us back to a question Steve Bolden asked me on asked us to discuss and it's all related here how do you how does a new student tell they're going to a good school or legitimate school and how it ties into these videos is you have people on Facebook who I'm telling you I know them like, I know them. They learned their forms from some fucking VHS tape. <laughs> not, even, not, not even a DVD, but a and, VHS tape. <laughs> they, you know, and they put themselves out there as Wing Chun instructors, and, and they'll post videos. And I'm saying, like, I say to myself, like, did they look at this video before they posted it? Like, right. they couldn't have looked at the video and said to themselves, oh, yeah, you know what? That looks good. Like, listen, I know. I'm fat. If I took a picture in a Speedo, I may keep it on my phone as a joke, but I'm not putting it out there because I'm intelligent enough to know that I look like shit <laughs> in a Speedo. If you put, if you in your head think, oh, yeah, well, I know Vuji. I know, I know Mukyang Jong form. And you film yourself doing it, and you want to, like, show your friend, hey, look, this is what I do with Kung Fu, and, oh, yeah, I'm a big-time Sifu. Yeah, no one ever heard of me, but that's what I am. That's awesome. You can live in your own fantasy world. I don't give a shit. But the second you put it out there, not only do you make yourself look bad, you make anybody who actually took the time to learn the system look worse. Right. And, you know, unfortunately right now you have people that are learning from these videos and they think that Wing Chun is comprised of the forms. They think that Wing Chun is comprised of the forms plus fighting in Chi Sao. And they'll put in mouthpiece and MMA gloves and say we're going to do Chi Sao. And they literally roll one, two, three, and then just beat the shit out of each other. Right. And they're putting that out there as, as Wing Chun. And... How does the new perspective? How does a prospective student know if they're walking into your school, a legitimate Wing Chun school, or if they're walking into 
you know, somebody who just had enough money to open up a school. Like, you right. know, a school, a, a, re- a legitimate school in my eyes doesn't have to take place in a, uh, a commercial establishment. Sure. Um, I, I taught out of my house for 20 years. And, um, and I know a lot of seriously legit people that teach out of their garage and teach. So, so the location isn't really what's going to cue people in. Sure. And, and I used to feel, and sorry for taking so long with this, I used to feel it didn't matter. I used to say to people, it didn't matter. When you're new, go wherever you look. it looks comfortable to you. Walk in, the students look happy, the instructor looks like he's not a jerk, everybody's kind of like in a good mood, no one looks like they're bleeding all over the place, it looks like a controlled, happy atmosphere. Hey, join up and have some fun. Right. But then someone posed me the question saying, oh yeah, but now what if you train in that place a year? And how do you know if you're learning legitimate Wing Chun? Right. How would you answer the question, bud? I mean... Well, I mean, I think uh, the Internet has helped to solve a little bit of that. While it's kind of, you know, on one hand, it's kind of like you said, the best thing and the worst thing. Well, we discussed why it's kind of the worst thing because of the misrepresentations and the kind of self-appointed seafoods who like to go there and show, you know, their own self-created nonsense or whatever. Um, But to a certain degree, it also allows other people to shine who actually have legit skill. And um, eventually, I think the students, you know, if, if they look on Facebook and, and, and they go, they'll know after a while at some point, um, you know, if, if they're intelligent enough, they'll kind of they'll, they'll know whether they're at a legit place or not. Of course, there's always people out there who are really good at selling the shit out of something that is, uh, right. um, you know, just just a bunch of snake oil or whatever. There, there are a lot of people who create very kind of cult like personas at their school, especially in traditional martial arts. And that's not limited to Wing Chun, but it, it certainly does exist in Wing Chun. Uh, uh, and I can tell you stories that uh, you would, 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 would turn your stomach. <laughs> like, um, But uh, hopefully there is also a little bit of savvy uh, savviness that's kind of uh, brought up by a lot of these postings as well, where people can look and they can you know, see the things you might post or see what somebody else who's legitimate might post and go, hmm, this makes sense and this kind of contradicts what I'm hearing and, and they can at least think about it. But again, it's a mess right now. I think Wing Chun is, is uh, to a certain degree, uh, has a level of popularity it didn't have before because of things like the Yip Man movies and the internet has also allowed it to kind of push up to a degree, but it's also... I believe at its lowest point in terms of reputation because of the amount of garbage there is out there and, and these kind of self-deluded uh, Kung Fu and Wing Chun people saying, yeah, well, you know, like we, we discussed on the second podcast or the first podcast, like, yeah, if you try to take me down, I'm just going to you know stab you in the eyes with my thumb right. or something like that. And, and this is uh, complete nonsense. And, and that stuff also makes us look bad, not just the, the poor techniques they show, but the attitude in general, you know? Right. Well, I mean, like, as probably like you, I get phone calls all the time, sometimes from friends, sometimes from complete strangers. And they'll have a JKD question or a Wing Chun question. And it's inevitable, a good portion of the, the, you know, the, the questions they ask are really oftentimes legitimate, really good questions. You can tell, like, it's always from the student who decided to research more than their instructor is telling them and realizes now like oh maybe i'm either i'm missing stuff or my instructor doesn't know what the hell he's talking about mm-hmm. and a lot of times i'll and this happens all the time i'll get a question like oh hey you know Sean, i have a question about uh, long pole 
And how come some people do it this way? Some people do it that way. Um, what, you know, how do you do it and why do you do it that way? And I always ask them, the first question I always ask them is, how long are you doing Wing Chun? Right. And they'll almost all the time, I get a year. <laughs> uh, oh, 14 months. And I, I, I'll say, well, you know what? At a year, I was, I think at a year, I was uh, still learning the beginning part of Chum Q. So, you but know. Sean, that sounds really hard. That sounds like a lot of work. Like, <laughs> why can't I just do the long pole after nine months? I mean, come on. And, and, and they get upset because they're like, well, you know, so I think one of the biggest indicators is of, of a phony school is that if you see people at the school doing a long pole and you say to them, hey, how long are you here? And they say, oh, a year? Turn around and run. Right, right. Well, it's also an indication not just of, of them kind of selling this stuff really quickly and selling the, the fantasy that, oh, if you just win in the forms, you also know the Wing Chun, but... I've also found, and there was a school in New York that was notorious for that. Like you would go to this Wing Chun school and after six months, uh, they would already be doing the wooden dummy. And I don't mean they'd be doing stuff on the wooden dummy. I mean, they'd be doing the wooden dummy form, oh, meaning man. they've already gone through Sunum Tao Chumki Buji. And it's like, there's so much information I have for each of those forms in terms of drills and how to apply it in fighting and how to actually use it and then how to use it in Chi Sao that I, I couldn't even possibly teach that amount of curriculum at that time. I mean, maybe if I had like a, a, a wonderkind who was right. training with me every single day for six hours, that would be one thing. But what you also find about these schools and, and this one particular school, which doesn't exist anymore, like within six months, you know, by, by nine months, they're already doing the long pole, is that it's generally because outside of the forms, they don't really have a whole lot to teach. They, right, they, that's they, exactly it. Yeah. They have basically boiled down Wing Chun. Okay, here are the forms. Here's like five drills of Lapta and a couple Punsao drills and a couple things here. Good. Now you can learn Buji. Here's like three <laughs> Buji applications, a couple things, a couple tricks in Chiso. Great. You're ready for the wooden dummy. And and it, it actually is a sign that the instructor doesn't really have a whole lot to teach if they're blazing through the material at that at that level of speed. It really means that there's not a whole lot of depth to what they have. And um, I always make the joke when I hear somebody come in like, oh, I've been already doing long pole and he's doing Wing Chun less than a year. I go, you must have had a fantastic instructor because I'm not even capable of teaching that much curriculum in that short a time. I, 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 I wouldn't be able to, to do it. And it would, in my opinion, it would be like overfilling a cup Right, uh, you know, and the, the, they just—they're not ready for it, you know. Well, they, they said they said there's two ways to make sure no one can ever learn anything from you. Don't teach them anything, or teach them everything the first day. That's right. And um, I, I, I like when uh, I like when a teacher can sit there and take a basic section of the form and go through things and and spend time and 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 really learn. Everything that I can, at that level of my understanding, learn at that form. And I, I remember spending hours with Steve Golden on literally just the first section of Sunandao. Like, we would spend hours on it, and we weren't wasting time. You know, we were, I was learning. Like, you know, and then what happened is then you would learn something else, or I should say, like, your learning maybe became a little bit deeper. And then he would take it and uh, go back to that same section and say, okay, here's a little tweak on that, you know. Right, and and I think that's what's missing in so much of the 
so many of the Wing Chun schools, and unfortunately, it's worse with JKD schools. Because one of the biggest differences, and I said I, I, I alluded to that I was going to answer this question last week, and I'm going to do it this week. One of the biggest differences between Wing Chun and Jeet Kune Do is that Wing Chun at least has an established methodology. Right. It has, depending on the lineage, a certain amount of forms, a way, a, a way of doing the forms, um, drills that, that that lineage does, how they do the drills, and the lessons that are derived from the drill, from the drills. There's a, there's a certain cohesiveness to it. Yeah. Exactly. So at least Wing Chun has that. JKD has become this... I mean, I literally read today on the internet some guy saying, uh, oh, people... I, I went to some JKD group, which I'm going to drop out of now, but he, he posted something to the effect of, people are always saying that uh, my JKD is illegitimate, and it's a combination of Taekwondo and this and that, and he named like four or five fucking off that were useless. And, <laughs> and I said to myself, like, this poor guy. I actually feel bad for the guy, because I'm sure he's a well-intentioned, nice guy, Thinking he's doing Jeet Kune Do by combining Taekwondo and boxing and, right. and white crane bullshit or whatever. Right. And, and he thinks that this is Jeet Kune Do. And it's because there's no established methodology to Jeet Kune Do. There is the way Bruce Lee taught it. And a lot of people stick with that. And I fully respect that. They're only going to do what Bruce Lee did. And hey, you know, go with it. Um, well, it's safe. that's safe. Right. It's safe. Right. It's It's safe. For if you if you have that body type, it's it's at least it's at least safer if you have that body type and all your students have that body type. But um, no, I, I mean it's it's safe in saying that if they ever get criticized, they say, "Hey, we're doing what Bruce Lee did." You're not. I mean, like they, right, true, they, true, they, true. They kind of try, try to set up a situation where they can't be criticized. Right. This and is true. Say, well, well, these are the drills that he taught. Look at this. here's a photo of him doing this, and 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 I'm sticking just with that. You know what I mean? Right. So I, I, I want so in, in answering that question, that whole the, what's the difference between Wing Chun and Jeet Kune Do, the two things that I had that at least to me are the difference from my experience is Wing Chun has an established methodology. And the other thing was I want to bounce off of you because I found in, in Wing Chun, and again, I want to preface it by saying not all lineages and I'm sure – Every seafood is different, and I'm sure whoever's listening to this and getting pissed off, I'm sure that they're different, okay? So, in Wing Chun, there seems to be not an acceptance of broken rhythm, of fakes and faints. How dare you? How right. dare you? <laughs> yeah, fat bastard. <laughs> it just seems like, so I've, I've spoken to a lot of Wing Chun people, I'm friends with a lot of Wing Chun people. And I, I, I am a Wing Chun person. And it seems to be that in Wing Chun, they don't use fakes and feints, at least on the level that JKD people do it. And I think that that seems to be the biggest difference in, in the two martial arts. Is that because they both, in my opinion, philosophy, or I should say that, principle-based arts, you know, principles over techniques. And, um, but... JKD uses broken rhythm, I think, when it's done correctly, very well. And Wing Chun kind of looks down its nose at, at broken at broken rhythm, at uh, at fakes and feints, or looks at it as in inefficient or ineffective. Right. What's your thoughts on that? As a 
Wing Chun Grandmaster. Grandmaster? Oh, well, man. How dare you? How dare you? Uh, if you're not, I'll, I'll, I'll write you out a certificate and send it to you. Don't worry about it. I, I would prefer <laughs> Dai Sifu of almightiness. That that seems to be more in line with my way of thinking. No, no, no. Oh, man, we could totally do an episode on titles and stuff like that. I can give you the whole Chinese lowdown on, on what that stuff actually means, and people need to chill the hell out on, on, on thinking that they have some kind of special titles. Okay, yeah, well, I mean, that's a great question. Um, well, I think p part of the thing you have to look at is you have to look at the arts in the context in which they were developed, okay? I mean, Jeet Kune Do, we can say, is primarily a product of the 60s and 70s, um, and also Bruce Lee's uh, experience with the other martial artists at the time, and, and I think that Jeet Kune Do is extremely advanced in its approach uh, of combat, especially when we talk about distance fighting. Uh, and if you also, if you look at it in the context of what, other people were doing in the 60s. I mean, Bruce Lee was unbelievably ahead of everybody. I mean, uh, you're watching MMA now and you're seeing people figure out stuff that he wrote about back then, you know? Right, it's, like, yeah. it's, it's really incredible, right? Um, when you look at Wing Chun, Wing Chun was developed in basically in the Qing Dynasty and uh, was further kind of uh, upgraded or some people might consider it downgraded into more of a street, uh, Hong Kong street fighting art in the 50s and 60s. But uh, Wing Chun was developed at a time where you weren't fighting a boxer, you weren't fighting a kickboxer or a wrestler or whatever. It, it's it, in, according to certain sources, I mean, Wing Chun was in particular designed to fight against certain types of long fist styles and northern styles, which had kind of looping wide swinging punches. And this is why sometimes people will look at the things that Wing Chun people do against like round punches and think that it's kind of basic. But in, in those days, people weren't throwing like tight hooks in Qing Dynasty uh, China. They were throwing these like, you know, the, these, these, these wild hanging punches, which if yeah. they caught you would just knock your head right off. So Wing Chun was developed at that time. And, and, and the setup was pretty basic. You know, if, if, if the guy didn't just jump you and start fighting you, he would take some kind of position and, and you would be able to tell what kind of style he was doing just based by what his hands look like. And then, you know, they'd, he'd kind of stalk you a little bit and you'd stalk him and then somebody would come in and attack and then you would defend. It was it was a little bit more straightforward and they didn't really come up with this idea of, okay, I'm going to bait you to come forward. When you come forward, I'm going to tag you or I'm going to create an opening for you to go to and when you go to it, I'm going to tag you on the high line. This is something that has obviously a lot of influence from Western boxing. Right. So. Wing Chun was developed at a time, so of course, when you go generation after generation, every Sifu has to tell you that what they're teaching is the best thing and, and the most logical and the smartest martial art or whatever. And what happens when new things come along? Uh, traditional guys go, that's a bunch of shit and that would never work. And then they give you some kind of reason that's not based on actual experience, it's just based on they don't like it, it's not what they do. So you get a lot of justifications for why we don't do certain things in Wing Chun when the reality is, it didn't exist at the time Wing Chun was developed, and most people are still kind of teaching a Wing Chun if their lineage is legit. That's, you know, kind of like a museum piece from this older time that's been carried on to the newer time. Now, if we look at the Wing Chun principles, we can adapt them to the way people fight nowadays, and we can refine our training methods without really changing the Wing Chun. We can change how we train and what we train against. Um, but I think the reason why a lot of Wing Chun guys look down on those things 
is because they don't know it and everyone fears what they don't know sure, and, sure. and and it normally it doesn't come out as fear it comes out as bravado that's a bunch of shit somebody has to be close enough to me to really hit me and when he comes close enough i'm gonna nail him blah 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 blah, blah. and these things are not based out of experience that it's just all conjecture and it's based on preferences and it's based on fear because they don't know what it's like and and i think that that is in general, a problem of traditional martial arts, not just Wing Chun. Right. Um, so, um, you know, I, again, it's a matter of updating the training methodologies. The last thing I'll say about that is this. Um, I consider myself a very traditional Wing Chun instructor in that I, I teach a very kind of Hong Kong-based Wing Chun with one exception. I teach it in a very structured Western way. And I, my idea of being traditional in Wing Chun is this. Wing Chun was designed to fight against other styles of martial arts, other styles originally against other styles of Kung Fu. Nowadays, we don't fight a Choi Le Fat guy. We don't fight a Hong Kong guy on the street or, or whatever. You're going to fight somebody who comes at you like a street fighter or maybe he knows a little bit of wrestling. I'm not talking about fighting high-level people on the street right. um, you know, or, or, or imitate something that looks like boxing or something that looks like kickboxing or whatever. So in order for Wing Chun to actually stay traditional – we have to just change the arts that we're fighting against. But that is by definition what Wing Chun did is it fought against the other styles. Too many Wing Chun guys focus on so much Wing Chun versus Wing Chun Chi self sparring that they forgot that you're not going to fight somebody who keeps his hands on the center line. You're gonna fight someone who's gonna to try to punch you over the top and try to grab your arms and try to put you in a headlock. So if we um, structure the training, and this is how I do it in my school, one guy is Wing Chun when we're doing sparring training, not Chi Sao training. Sure. One guy is Wing Chun and the other guy is non-Wing Chun. But that non-Wing Chun has to be like street fighter or, or boxer or kicker or something like that. And that's what our guys practice their Wing Chun against. So then we come up with things, well, what happens when the guy faints or what happens when the guy tries to do this or whatever. And using the Wing Chun principles, we can, we can overcome these ideas. But um, we don't have to say, oh, that's a bunch of shit and that would never work. You know, uh, so that's kind of how I look at it. Oh, uh, that was freaking awesome. I, I actually liked that a lot. That was um, about the most honest thing I've ever heard a Wing Chun person ever say. Um, yeah, it's rare. It's rare. But. It's rare. But you know what? It's, it's rare for... Just ask me how much I weigh. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not going to tell you the truth either. Um, two things that you brought up that I wanted to uh, touch on a little bit. Um, you said you're a traditional guy. Mm -hmm. And um, that's going to lead us down a deep, dark road. Because so am I, and my traditions are better than yours. Because I just invented. No, <laughs> no, mine are older, you know. Oh well, yeah, this is true. Okay, right. so when you were just talking there, like you know how a guy lines up, you know his hands are not going to be on center line. It reminded me of something I used to teach, and I have to actually put it in my notes again because I haven't talked about it in a long time. I used to do something. Guys that train with me in Brooklyn will hear. If anybody's listening, Makiwa um, and that crowd. Dave Polk, you guys, you'll remember this. Um, I used to call it strategy of the glance. That the second you lined up with a guy, we kind of had this little mental checklist. Did, are his hands on center or are they off center? Mm -hmm. Which foot's forward? And literally like four things that were, on, were on the checklist. Four to five things were on the checklist. And that would give you what we would call in strategy of the glance, just to give you an idea of how to approach this problem. Because as you know, you spar, you fight, you know... So if, if a guy's hands are on center, presents different issues than his hands are off center. You know, yes. if, if his hands are on center and, and, and you want to make them come out because you want that he's comfortable on center, you want his hands to widen. How are we going to widen his hands? Maybe with, you know, some sort of combination attack, 
looping punches, if he's a blocker, it gets it gets to be a little bit complicated. But mm-hmm. the, the jumping off point was um, this idea of strategy at a glance, and just this uh, when you when you said that hands on center, it just popped into my head, and I had I had to express it. But um, do you guys want that? Do you guys do any kind of scenario training? That to to me, like I love scenario training, and I know you can get it can get a little bit dorky, but uh, we had a guy once when I was teaching in Brooklyn. All we did was straight up sparring, and I had never heard of scenario training. And we had a visitor um, one day. This guy Ian from the internet. Ian, Ian uh, from the internet. Ian from the internet. There's two of them. It's the guy. It's the one from Canada. Mm-hmm. And he contacted me, and um, and I'm sorry, with Ian, I can't remember your last name right now. I'm drawing a blank. I've been hit in the head way too many times. <laughs> um, Ian contacted me and said, hey, I'd like to come down one night and you know meet you guys. And he had heard of me from the website. and So he came down, and he said, hey, do you guys do any kind of scenario training? And the concept was foreign to me. Now, this is, I'm going to say, almost 20 years ago, 16 years ago, 17 years ago. I had never heard of scenario training. And I was like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And he said, oh, well, there's the save your wife drill. And I'm like, save your wife drill? What the hell? So what we did was, and it was, it was awesome. We took the heavy bag. And we put two guys in front of the heavy bag. And the heavy bag was your wife. We literally named it your wife. So we would say, <laughs> like, you know, so if, if you were my student, Alex, I would say, okay. I would bring you over and say, okay, this is Carol. The heavy bag. This is Carol. And... Your job is to protect Carol. These two morons are going to try and beat her up. Mm-hmm. And it, it's, it's a different dynamic because you can't just engage with one guy. Because sure. if you just start fighting with one guy, clinch up with one guy, the yeah. other one just starts wailing on the heavy bag. Yeah, yeah. Right. So it, it kind of creates this, this uh, new dynamic to sparring. And it's not just two on one. It's kind of like a responsibility, you know, this, this protect the person type sparring, you know. And, and, and from there, we kind of grew it out with, um, there was like literally the walk, we used to call it the walk through the park drill. Well, you had to try and get to the door drill. We'd stand catty corner. There, there was a door in the corner to the backyard deck. And you'd make the, the guy stand on the other side of the, the, the deck. And he literally just had to get to the door. If he could touch the door, he won. He, he, right. That was his goal in life, was to get we, to that we, door. We, we do that same drill, by the way. Oh, that's awesome, you know? Yeah, for so multiple to, attackers. Right, so, so 17 years ago, this was the newest shit in the world to me. I had never heard of it. And, like, and so one of the guys that trained with me, and, and still does, he's my, probably my closest friend in the world, is a gentleman named Walt who is a retired detective and he added so much to the drill and like um he would have like okay i'm walking through the park and you would approach me and ask me what time it was uh-huh. and just how to deal with that you know how to how to deal with someone asking you what, what time is it and you know how to get the feeling whether they're being aggressive or not and sure it was uh it was absolutely Phenomenal, and I, I just—if you're listening to this podcast and you don't do scenario drills, give it a shot. Just give it a shot. Um, It's—it'll definitely change the way you spar. Yeah, this is um, a big part of of what I think a lot of traditional martial artists forget is that they think that a a street fight or a self-defense scenario is going to be set up like a sparring match in that. You have two people who are kind of in an on-guard position, kind of facing off with each other, and then they go. Whereas 
real fighting, you know, especially like when you talk about the kind of macho BS that goes on between two dudes, it's like two dudes in each other's face, like talking, saying some stuff, pushing, shoving, and then no one's in any kind of set stance. It's also oftentimes not even clear, like, are we going to fight or is this just like a situation that like, are we arguing? Are you going to swing and throw a punch at me? So there's an entire body of knowledge. Um, My Steve calls it like ritual fighting, which is kind of like, you know, the, the kind of. Uh, you, you know, think of like the, the gorilla beating on his chest, kind of like you know, right. protecting your area kind of thing. And, and he created a program known as Blitz Defense. And Blitz Defense, uh, when it first came out, uh, which is now, uh, man, like 16 years ago already, it was basically like, all right, we start Wing Chun with our hands forward like this with the assumption that our opponent is out of distance and he's going to close the the distance and we're going to go in and punch him or whatever. But when you're at a bar and somebody gets in your face, you have to put your hands up and you have to put it in a way where it doesn't look like you are necessarily ready to punch the guy in the face. Otherwise you're going to escalate the situation. So he came up with this kind of almost like a wolf in sheep's clothing way of having your hands up. So you're ready in case something happens, but it doesn't look outwardly aggressive. So you could also, you have a chance to kind of do some verbal de-escalation if need be or whatever. And he caught a lot of flack from the Chinese end, like, oh, you know, how dare you change a program and why you, why you teach your students to do it like that, you know, and then everyone was very upset about it. But what they didn't realize is, well, this is actually how people fight in the 21st century. You know, it's like two dudes at a bar talking shit to each other, um, especially when you think of it, there's basically two types of violence um, and uh, you have predatory violence and you have social violence, right? Predatory violence is, you know, the guy's waiting behind the, the car and he's ready to attack you and he's planned it. He's he's ready to go or somebody who's, you know, right. uh, uh, has some kind of great scheme or whatever. And, and that's where somebody breaks into your house or something, right? Uh, specifically to do you harm. Like predatory violence is totally crazy and has a completely different dynamic than social violence. Social violence is what dudes actually end up getting in more times than not. You know, it's too much alcohol. And uh, and and you know some somebody said something or looked at somebody for too long or whatever, and then right. it starts from there. And and that's a scenario that essentially needs to be practiced. And, and blitz defense was my Sivu, uh, my Sivu's Keith Kanspray is like the head of the EWTO in Europe, so the biggest Wing Chun organization. He basically took like the traditional Wing Chun and modified it in a way where it wouldn't look like you were trying to Wing Chun the guy. It right. just looked like you wanted to talk to him and to like play cool. But if he moved, you were absolutely ready to pounce into action. And if you were able to de-escalate it, everyone was happy and no one was the wiser that you knew any kind of martial arts. And and this stuff is something that, you know, normally flies way over the heads of any kind of traditional martial arts guy because they, you know, it's like, I give you the ceremonial right to stretching <laughs> and we will bow in and then we will have our match on the on the tatami or whatever. And And this kind of idea is fun to practice Mar- competitive martial arts are amazing but this doesn't necessarily reflect the reality of uh, social violence as it might happen in a bar or uh, you know when you're just out and about so i totally agree that that kind of training is super important just just as a as an aside one of the things we used to have the guys do it was the funniest shit to watch but it was a real thing we would have our guys whoever was being the good guy in the in the scenario drill while he was fighting he had to be yelling out, stop hitting me. I don't want to fight. Leave me alone. Please leave me alone. And yes, yes, we would yes. make them say that over and over again out loud. And we used to call it witness training. 
Yes, yeah, it's super important. But I tell you, but that, that can't be overlooked. That's super important. Right. And like you literally, and I had, oh God, it was had to be two years, three years after we started doing this. I had a guy who I, you know, trained with me for six months or whatever. And I ran into him at the mall. And he told me that he, it really worked for him. He got, he had someone give him a hard time in a store and throw a punch at him. And he kind of like put the guy down and got away. And, and uh, at least until people could break up the fight. And this, this, you know, it was in a store at a mall. And the store owner had called the police. And the first words out of the mouth of the store owner was, once the cops walked in, all of a sudden that guy was begging for the other guy to stop hitting him. <laughs> he, goes, he goes, and he said to me, Sean, it literally just came out of my mouth. The second I popped the guy in the mouth, I was like, please stop hitting me. Boom, I don't want to fight. <laughs> he goes, so I got the guy mounted and I'm dropping my elbow into his face yelling, stop hitting me. <laughs> That's very smart, man. That's very smart. <laughs> Unfortunately, there's also stories of police using some similar tactics when they say, uh, stop resisting, stop resisting, and then they keep hitting the guy with the stick or whatever. You know? <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> oh, by the way, um, before we forget, we, we had a couple questions on the uh, on the Facebook page, on the uh, Dudes of Kung Fu Facebook page that uh, they wanted us to answer the First one was uh, from a guy named Tofu who said, what's your favorite book on Wing Chun and why? And I'll let you answer that first, and then I'll give my answer. Okay, so since I do not have Alex's book yet, and I will bring it up until I have Alex's book. Very diplomatic answer, by the way. Um, since I don't have Alex's book yet, I would say right now, right now my favorite Wing Chun book has to be David Peterson's new book. Um, I'm oh, reading nice. it. Oh, I haven't even seen it yet. Yeah. Oh, it's 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 phenomenal. It's, it's got to be 300 pages. Uh, full, you know, full color photos, tons of great information, and you know, even if you don't train in Wing, Wong Chung Lung Wing Chun, which I do not, it's it's all applicable to what I do, and I think he's a brilliant writer, and I'm absolutely enjoying his book a lot. And you can get the book, I think, by going to the uh, Wing Chun Illustrated website, which is the, the I think Wing Chun Illustrated, which is uh, a right, know, the main the magazine, right? Yeah, they're published publishing, it, right? They publish yeah. it, right? The book, yeah. the book is phenomenal, and um, I really, I just, I can't say, I can't say enough good things about it. If awesome. regal, regardless of what your lineage is, this book will definitely up your Wing Chun game. And, yeah, uh, those bo those books I think are always great. Like that, um, you know, even books that are written by very close students of, of you know whatever Sifu or whatever. But if if they're written in such a way where it's about conveying information that's important and universal and and well, I guess also logical for lack of a better term, that other people can get use of it. Um, I think those are really the books that are really effective. I think when you have a lot of kind of partisan books that are just very much like. Uh, kind of saying, you know, they're giving information, but they're also the, on one hand saying why they're the only ones who do it right or whatever. I think I think that those those books are kind of tiresome, and 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 I think people kind of can smell that a mile away. And I think the only people who like those books are the ones who come from that particular lineage anyway, and they kind of they lose right. everybody else. It's a difference. It's a difference between having a book that gives information and a book that's just a marketing ploy. Sure, if, sure, if sure. If a book is just a marketing tool, you can you can tell right away. Yeah, that's why I, I, I tried to write my book in um, in that kind of way as well. And and honestly, I've, I've read a number of David Peterson's articles, and I thought they were really great. And and you know, took kind of uh, certain parts of his writing style 
into account when I wrote my book because I thought, you know, I'm a Long Tin guy, and I and I thought that his, uh, you know, articles on on how his Sifu Wong Sun Lung taught things were very beneficial and they made a lot of sense. And I thought, you know, it'd be great if I could write this way about Long Tin's methods that other people might feel the same way, you know. Um, and also, uh, I have a my book. My book is going to be reviewed in the next Wing Chun Illustrator magazine. Oh, and, nice. And the cover interview is Sifu Elman Lung, who's my Sibak, my Kung Fu uncle, and I did the interview for for him for that. So he's the he's the next cover of Sifu Elman Lung. He um he learned from Grandmaster Yip Man when he was a teenager in the mid '60s, and uh, so he he started in Yip Man's class, and then he had to take a short break after nine months because he was going to school or whatever, and then. Uh, when his school life kind of got um, a little less hectic, he came back to training and he found out that uh, Yip Man had handed over the Wing Chun Athletic Association class to Learn Ting. So he came back to the, the school after like two years expecting like Yip Man to still be there. And then like, so there's this guy, Learn Ting there. And, and, and Yip Man was like, yeah, he's handed over the class to this guy. And then he's like, <laughs> okay. And then he just started following Learn Ting and then essentially became one of the first generation Lung Ting guys from Hong Kong, and he moved to San Francisco in the mid seventies. And and uh, oh, he's wow, that's um, cool. Yeah, and I, I um you know whenever I'm in San Francisco, I always uh, you know go out and and, and uh, you know have a, have a meal with him. And you know when I can uh, occasionally do some private training with him, I, I learned some stuff. Uh, he improved stuff in my wooden dummy form and also in my long pole technique. That uh, really very old old school Lung Ting stuff for sure. So really cool. So look out for that in the next Wing Chun Illustrated. So I guess I need to answer what I think my favorite Wing Chun book is. Yes. Um, let's so go. write this shit down. Let's go. Yeah, that's right. Okay. So besides my own book, right. I, <laughs> which I, I, I actually, honestly, I can't even look at my book anymore because I spent so much time putting that thing together. I, I, I don't even want to see it anymore. I'm so tired of it. Um, no, I think actually one of the best books, ironically, is not even a Wing Chun book. I like Jack Dempsey's book, Championship Fighting. And in that book, uh, he explains why the you know bottom three knuckle punch, which we use in Wing Chun, um, you know, aiming with the ring finger knuckle, why that's like the the only pure punch there is in pun in, in in fist fighting. And um, I find that actually, in in terms of explaining simultaneous offense and defense with the punching arm, punching power, getting your weight behind the punch, it does a way better job of explaining a Wing Chun punch than most Wing Chun books. So I would have to say cool. my my current favorite, and of course. I'm saying that uh, in, in a slightly ironic tone. I mean, I think I own about 500 Wing Chun books, which include uh, books that are not even in, in languages I can understand. Like I have books in Russian about Wing Chun. And I have a bunch of Chinese books, which I can read to a certain degree. Um, Championship Fighting is really one of my favorite books. And if you, uh, it, it's, it's now in public domain. You can actually get them as a PDF for free online right um, and they do have a reprint of it i actually have two original 1952 copies of the book on my wow. bookshelf yeah um, so you mean you mean you have one because you're... <laughs> <laughs> one, one, one of them one of them was lost for a number of years it was uh i i bought it i got a really good price on it i, I lent it to somebody i didn't see it for many years and then it just showed up last year again and wow. i told this to my student like two years ago and one of my students got me a new original 1952 ones, so oh, now I have awesome. two 
original 1952 Jack Dempsey championship fightings. They're amazing. And, and Jack Dempsey was like, he was an old school cat back then already in the fifties. He was complaining about the new boxers coming out in the fifties, calling them a bunch of fancy dance <laughs> who didn't, didn't know how to do any pure punching and didn't know anything about footwork. And it was just really funny because you think when you look at boxers from the fifties, they look way tougher than boxers from today. Like yeah, really. boxers, boxers from the fifties had cauliflower ear. That's how freaking tough they were. Right. right, and, right. He, and he was calling those guys fancy dance, you know, so that's they just awesome. Some perspective, you know. <laughs> so so. you just used the term seabock. Uh, we should yes. one day spend some time on on terminology. Absolutely, um, and people who care about that stuff. Well, people need to care about that stuff, and here's why. A couple minutes ago, maybe you know what? It's a half hour ago. I mentioned to you about a guy who called me up asking me about uh, long pole after a year, mm-hmm. and. When I asked him how long he was studying the system, I swear to God, he told me he was his rank was Seahing and he's taking his test for Seabock. Oh, sorry, I just vomited <laughs> a little bit in my mouth. Sorry, sorry. So we spent the next half hour explaining the idea of that they're not titles; that it's more of a relationship um, designation, and he was blown away by this. And uh, yeah, if I had a nickel for every time I had to explain that to people, like, uh, oh yeah, I, uh, how long does it take to become the rank of Seagong? And I just, right. just want to stab a fork in my eye when I hear something like that. Um, yeah, yeah, we can definitely do an episode on that because you know uh, my understanding of Chinese language and also like all this traditional crap, which seems to occupy my life for some reason. Um, I, I could probably offer some unique perspective on that. Um, there was another question, by the way, on the Facebook page. Uh, this is a simple one, which uh, uh, Michael Boyce asked about jiao recipes, ditta jiao recipes, which right, I right, know right. I know absolutely nothing about. So I use ditta jiao regularly, but I buy it from people who know what the hell they're doing. Um, of like the bodies of knowledge that I have some uh, knowledge in, that which are very limited. <laughs> um, Chinese medicine is something uh, I'm I'm extremely limited in. I actually do have a sifu in Chinese medicine, though. Uh, nice. I started learning I started learning last year before I got my so- shoulder surgery, and he's actually teaching me how to make ditta jiao, and he's actually teaching me how to um, tell which herbs are correct and how to do the right kind of combination and everything like that. So I'm actually learning it right now, but I'm nowhere near qualified to say. I, I would just say if you're interested in ditta jiao, find a reputable brand and just buy it and use it and don't worry about making your own. It's a huge pain in the ass. Yeah. So <laughs> and I know buy. nothing about Chow. I know yeah. nothing about Dita Chow. Just buy it. And and we can also do another episode on that. I can um, tell people how to use it because uh, uh, first of all, I'm very pragmatic. There's a lot of stuff in Chinese medicine that I don't believe. I'm not a proponent of chi power and you know all that kind of right. nonsense. But Dita Jiao is something that that um, it's basically a liniment you can you can put on you know to treat bruises or contusions or whatever, and um, it's back you know by science the the herbs that are in Dita Jiao have anti-inflammatory properties, so it, it's not a um, a big wonder why these things work. Um, you know, some Chinese guy might tell you it has something to do with qi. I mean, we can we can look at the herbs that are in there and understand why they, they help to reduce inflammation because based on their properties. And you know, I can give you, give the our audience some kind of ideas of, of good ways to use Dita Jiao in their own training. Um, 
Yeah, that sounds like besides, a lot. That sounds besides like scaring their partner because that stuff smells horrendous. <laughs> <laughs> so we still have to get on to the question of the week by uh, about uh, generating power, which, by the way, okay. I f- literally on the top of the page of the question, I, I wrote down the gentleman's name that asked it, and I just I, I apologize before for not getting his name right. Um, I'm going to say it wrong now anyway, but uh, that's just because I'm a moron. Mark Tijon Cecil Williams is his Facebook name. So it's okay. Mark Tijon Cecil Williams had um, asked about generating power, and I want to get to that in one minute. But before we get to that, there's two things I want to touch on, if that's okay, Alex. Okay. Um, first thing is, and it, it's a silly question. It's going to be a little lighthearted. What's the, what's your opinion on kung fu garb? And before you talk, I'm gonna tell you what I think, and then you can then you can uh, jump right in. I I think there's two different categories of kung fu garb to me. All right, um, one is the and by by garb by garb you mean clothing or by clothing? Yeah, you know what? Again, sorry about the the, the lingo. Um, kung fu clothing. So, uh, kung fu garb. So basically, you mean like uniforms and costumes and whatnot, right? Yeah. So like. I don't want to separate it from like JKD guy wearing the gold and black tracksuit, and and I'm not making fun of that. Yes, I am. But if you if like, listen, you know, some of my friends had that, and I think it's cool. If I like I said, I dig on Sherlock Holmes. Some guys dig on Bruce Lee. It's all cool. I don't care. Right. But like, I notice you like I wear I wear a t-shirt and sweatpants. And I notice right. you wear a t-shirt and sweatpants also. But we, we're not going to pretend that there's not guys out there literally walking around as if they were Yip Man in 1965. Um, right. But I'm also not going to lie and say that one of the reasons I don't have a kung fu top is because I can't get one in my size. If I could get one in my size, I'd have one. Because right. I just think they look cool. Whether sure. it's appropriate for a white dude to be wearing it or not. I right, don't know, right. and honestly, I couldn't care less. I just think they look cool. I don't know. I wouldn't, right. you know, I wouldn't wear it walking down the street on Richmond Avenue when I'm going to the diner. But I would, you know, me if I had like a black kung fu top with like those frog buttons and three quarter sleeves, that would be so freaking kick ass. But I noticed though you have a um, a uniform you wear periodically, and I. Kn- it's got like colored stripes on it. I think it's to do with your ranking yeah. and your lineage. Right right, right, right. Yeah. Well, basically, I mean, I you know, I come from the Leung Ting system. I, I left the uh, I, I left Leung Ting's organization about uh, five years ago. Um, but kind of you know because I do come from that line, I, I kept certain traditions from you know his uniform kind of in in my association as well. And um, one you know. Um, it's pretty straightforward. Basically, the students wear black pants and like a white colored T-shirt and the instructors have like a black T-shirt or the higher levels, you know, like their seafood level, they might wear a red T-shirt. And that kind of ranking thing is just it's important when you're running a professional school. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not important when you're teaching five guys, you know, like kind of right, sure. or whatever. Um, but, uh, you know, yeah, the, the stripes on the pants also like for what we call technicians, which are kind of the higher ranks or whatever. And what I did, though, is as soon as I went after I left um, my Seagong's association and became independent, I, I updated it a little bit. Uh, we still have the T-shirt. I did away with the traditional Lengting jacket because I just feel it's like kind of too heavy and too cumbersome. Okay. Um, so we just kind of wear like the, the, the T-shirt and I kept the. 
the the pants the same. The only difference is I updated the materials they were made out of. So uh, Lung Tang made, made his pants out of like a very heavy cotton, and sometimes they were almost denim-like, and they were like very heavy. Right, and sure, I, like I, a kung fu gi, a karate gi yeah, pants. Yeah, exactly. Um, the, our pants they're made um, from the same material, like a tracksuit, like like an Adidas tracksuit. Right, right, right. So they're very light and it's easy to kick and easy to move around. And if you go to the ground, you can move around well in it. And if, if you need to kick or whatever, and they're very light. And also I updated them by putting pockets in them. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I kind of pay, pay homage to my teacher in, in that I use the kind of, you know, the stripes for the advanced levels and so on and so forth. But I, I updated the materials and, and the design and the look a little bit. Um, and that's kind of a modern martial arts uniform it's a t-shirt and then some modern training pants right uh and and that's pretty much it we wear the traditional chinese kung fu shoes because for beginners it helps them we have like a soft like suede sole shoes mm-hmm. it helps them learn the footwork a little bit better uh than if they have like big cloggy sneakers and sometimes they don't learn to turn properly or whatever but for the advanced guys it becomes a little bit less of an issue um but other than that it's it's, it's kind of a modern representation of the old uh, kind of Chinese style workout clothes or whatever, but um, I always find a lot of white guys kind of look dopey in those those Chinese suits. And and look, I'm somebody. I go to Hong Kong on a regular basis, and I do have those kind of jackets in my closet. But I get the really nice ones from Hong Kong. Like they're made with like good quality materials, and, and they have nice designs on them, and they don't look like I bought them in Chinatown for ten bucks. Um, those are nice, and I'll wear those to like a special event or a banquet. But I always feel that as a white dude, despite my kung fu credentials or that I can speak a fair amount of Cantonese, I always feel like I'm playing dress up. And when I'm in Hong Kong and I wear one of those things to like a fancy event, I always feel like, oh, look at the white guy, he's wearing a nice jacket. Oh, isn't it cute? And they're all kind of looking at me, and then I become this like weird kind of uh, commodity for them to kind of look at and like oh that's a really nice jacket and it's funny because he's not chinese right right right, right. So it, it kind of draws too much attention when i wear it over there and when i wear it over here uh if you ever see a dude walking down the street in a kung fu jacket in new york you can rest assured the dude is probably nuts Right. Oh, yeah, that's true. That's kind of the case. Like, you know, uh, there's tons of homeless dudes who are like they are like Bruce Leroy in their head and they wear Kung Fu jackets and you can see them doing their own forms and fighting off 10 attackers that are in their mind, of course. Right, right, right. Pretty much in any park in New York City. So unfortunately, specifically in New York, there's kind of like a weird stigma with walking around wearing the the frog button jacket. So (laughs) I, I tend to avoid it a little bit. It's cool, it's cool. And uh, UFC 199 is tonight, brother. That's right. So by the time this podcast comes out, it'll be old news and everyone right, will know exactly. who won already. Yes. The one thing I have to say, though, is speaking of Bruce Leroy, Bruce Leroy, Alex Caceres, uh, who's like improved tremendously over all of his fights in UFC. His fight tonight, he took on 10 days notice and he fought Cole Miller because BJ Penn had to drop out because there was some I- he used an IV or something like that or whatever. Um and Bruce Leroy stepped up and took the fight at 145, and I think he normally fights at 135. He looked amazing, and I tell you what, he was doing like lead leg side kicks, roundhouse kicks. He had really nice punching combinations, and he would move up. He really fought, in my opinion, like a, a bit like Bruce Lee. Like if you want to see what Bruce Lee would have looked like 
Um, maybe it, uh, ha- had he had the training to fight in MMA, uh, I think he, we kind of saw it tonight in that fight. It's amazing. Uh, incredible footwork, head movement in the grappling exchanges. He was very smart and very wily. He even caught a couple kicks and dumped the guy, which is a very Wing Chun thing to do. Right. And I was, I got, you know, I got kind of a, a, a Wing Chun boner looking at that thing. <laughs> Oh, like, oh misty eyed and shit, huh? Yeah, oh my god, that was amazing. It, it was really one of my favorite fights. And it, it, in fact, when, when we're done tonight, I'm going to order the uh, the main card and, and uh, watch, uh, watch them go at it tonight. So I'm looking forward to that. You know, I think the question about the power, developing power, but I think that that's going to be its own podcast because I am a training methods geek all right geek it's important not to use the word nerd because there's a distinction between a nerd and a geek all right i'm a geek all right um and i can like go on and on and on about the topic of how it's because i I look i look at attribute development from a very modern scientific standpoint like i look at the martial artist as an athlete and i research the most modern methods in terms of how can we actually increase speed and power and conditioning and how do we do it scientifically and not just talk out of our ass or like oh i saw this one dude did this and this kind of works no i I can tell you i can give you actual very specific programs and how you how you can also test your own power and see whether what you're doing is working or not um and that would be like this that would be like an entire episode and on top of that I always feel I need to have a very strong caveat before I start talking about speed and power, because when most people say like, well, how do I improve my power? How do I improve my speed? What I really hear is given the fact that I don't really train that hard or that much, how can I shortcut it and be like totally awesome? Like what's the, what's the product for 1995 I can buy that's going to make me move as fast as Bruce Lee. Right. And the first thing is, you need to train a lot more than you're training now before we can even start having the conversation because everyone's looking for a shortcut and attribute development is not about shortcuts. It's All right, about, that, that's fine. Yeah. Um, so the, the gentleman that asked the question, oh, I can tell you he's, a, he's an old school martial artist like us and he put forth a great question here and I, and I feel, like, feel like we owe him we owe him the respect of giving him an answer. So if we can't do it tonight, we should make the promise that it will get done on the next episode. Absolutely. No, I think, I think that would be great. I mean, that, that, is a, that is an awesome topic. And training methods and, and uh, methodology are um, also not something that's lineage-specific. These are the, We look at human movement and we look at human performance, and, and we can discuss it scientifically in this independent of uh, lineage or, or trade secrets or whatever. I mean, this is like stuff we can really test. Uh, so Mark, Mark, uh, the John Cecil Williams, Mark. Listen, we owe you, I owe you an apology. I thought it was going to be tonight, but we kind of talked and talked and talked and talked and talked. And yeah, we were talking out of our ass for a really long time. We actually apologize. spoke a lot about nonsense tonight, and we <laughs> well, we want to give you a topic. It's just due. Yes. And we feel like if we went through it tonight, it wouldn't get its just due. Right. But um, I, I I will say you know I got to know him a little bit on Facebook. I don't I've never met the gentleman. But he seems like uh, seems like one of us. He seems like a little bit of a, an old an old soul when it comes to kung fu. Cool. And um, he definitely you can tell he's put his time in. I watched a couple of his videos and stuff. And uh, so I want to give it the respect that it's due. So Mark, I can tell you next week. I promise you, it will be a topic that we will talk to death over. And um, 
Well, I and and I promise you, I will you know make the notification on that that uh, you'll will you know we'll let you know what's happening. Fantastic. So uh, you know what? Let's do cool. One, uh, we'll, we'll do one last silly nonsense thing before we hang up. Yes. Yes. Okay, and I know you got your daughter's dad, and you got to take care of. Um, that's right. Because we just talk about training methodologies. Retain, rattan rings and metal rings. I've, uh, you know, we've all seen the picture of Vietnam with like the six metal rings on his wrist with the tan salve. There was only three. Someone photoshopped it to six, by the way. Oh, really? I think if you, if you, if you look at the original photo, I, I don't remember off the top of my head. It was either two or three rings, and so some dude photoshopped it to like six. And then I remember it was making the rounds of the internet, and some dude like put like put him all the way up his arm to make it look like even more ridiculous. That's awesome. <laughs> so, do you have any any do you do you guys use any of that, or have any see any need for the no, metal I mean, rings or rattan rings? This- this is also something that kind of uh, overlaps on the question about developing speed and power, which I think will be a great podcast topic for the next podcast. Um, Kung Fu people, unfortunately, they like gimmicky shit. All right. Let me just be like very straightforward and blunt about it. It's like they don't want to stand and like hit the heavy bag and, and do a bunch of rounds and, and, and do a bunch of stuff that just like improve your punch by doing a lot of punches and doing a lot of drills for punches. It's like, no. They want to put like a bunch of rings on their arms and they, they want to like do something with a rattan ring and make it look all cool and kung fu-y for the sake of it appearing to be more Chinese or more mystical or more Asian. When it's like, you know, if you really want to get good at punching, tell me how many punches you do a day. Because most of the time, and this is again overlapping on what we're going to talk about in the next podcast, you got guys who want to improve speed and power, but they don't want to actually do the thing they want to improve. It's like if you're doing a thousand punches a day and you're hitting a wall bag and a heavy bag and you're doing different speed drills and stuff like that, and then you feel your power and speed is still lacking, well, now we can talk about doing some kind of supplementary training. But when you're just kind of lazy or you go to class and do a couple punches here and there and you're like, How do, let me get some rattan rings to solve my problems of sticking. Or let me get some iron rings and then I'm going to have like this amazing grip. It's like you have to earn the right by training really hard to need supplementary training to get better. And most people don't do the original part, due process before they decide that they need to like use rings to make their power better or or oh i I can't stick where shit let me do it on a rattan ring what are was a rattan ring going to teach you besides pressing outward in the wrong direction i mean this is complete nonsense right and and um the metal rings are are something you see a little bit more in Hongkun, and I have some friends who who teach Hongkun in in Hong Kong, and also some of the Southern Mantis guys do this. And there's some really cool training methods for improving grip strength, which we can use in Wing Chun and Jeet Kune Do for things like lap cell, for example. Um, but is it more important to like do lap a thousand times and get really, really good at it before you decide you need the ring to improve it? Or do I, we need I, to do a bunch of ring training first? Do you see what I mean? No, you know, so, uh, I agree. So that's kind of how I look at that stuff in general. It's like later, that's kind of the cherry on top as opposed to the actual cake. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. It's, uh, I've, I've always found them useless. I just wanted to know what your opinion was on them. <laughs> So uh, I guess I guess to wrap things up, we got to remind people to check us out on Facebook, Dudes of Kung Fu. Right, yeah, uh, Facebook, yeah. Facebook.com slash Dudes of Kung Fu. And if you can, two things, give us a like and share it with your friends that do Kung Fu. 
just Absolutely. you know, there's a there's a there's a button on there, or there's a way of add, you know, invite your friends to like this page. We would really appreciate it. It would help the podcast grow. Um, we have a lot of also give us, give us a review on iTunes because, like, like we said, and what we're gonna in, in about a month, we'll we'll draw all the reviews in a hat, and then we'll give them a really cool prize, which will be you know some old pair of sweaty gloves we both use that we'll, we'll sign it for you guys or something. That would be cool. <laughs> yeah, in fact, I want a pair of those. But <laughs> awesome, awesome. All right, folks. Thank. Hey. I hope you enjoyed the the uh, podcast tonight, and uh, we will see you next week. Awesome. I'm going to go watch UFC. You have a good night. All right. Take care, Sean. Be good, brother. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye.